The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, good morning, everybody, and thanks for listening. Nice sunny day today. I just back from 10 days down in Texas where it was not sunny every day. I thought it would be this time of year, Fred. I, I thought that's why you go to, <laughs> you're always in uh, Texas. I thought it was always sunny. Well, if it's uh, cold weather, it's 40 degrees instead of uh, 15. That's so. true. It was, yeah. and they, my flight got canceled. I guess it was windy here. I was telling the guys, but spent a nice sunny day up on the seventh floor rooftop or whatever it's called. Anyway, nice to be back. Glad everybody could join us today for the show. I'm here with, obviously, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, glad to have you in the studio. Yeah, good to be here. Certified financial planner professional and retirement income certified professional, David Rudy. David? Good morning. Glad to see me back, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, it's been quiet guys, at the office. You guys were doing all the work. <laughs> uh, and financial advisor, Ryan Repko, who also works for us at Rudy Wealth Management. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. You could call in with your questions at 356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your question to talk at WDWS.com. We also want to welcome those tuning in on Facebook Live. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, good morning, guys. Uh, so no salt deduction, huh? For everybody's clamor, and I was just listening to that as Michael was was playing right. that. It's, yeah, it's a strange uh, kind of uh, turnaround because the uh, limitation on uh, state and local taxes really only affects high-income people and especially high-income states. So the Democrats are usually complaining about uh, mistreatment of poor people. Now they're <laughs> complaining about uh, rich people who aren't getting the full amount. Most people probably don't realize it, though, that they have a double uh, – their um, – Deductible is doubled in, in the tax law, so they don't are not as likely to uh, take an itemized deduction, but they're still getting the same kind of uh, of uh, tax saving they did before. It also raises the question: uh, uh, people are really unhappy about uh, uh, tax reform now, not because they're uh, having to pay more taxes because they didn't withhold as much, so right. people aren't getting their expected uh, refund, not because they paid more taxes, because they withheld less. Yeah, a lot of people have jumped on that as if it's, in, you know, the fact that people are getting smaller, whether that's true or not. I don't know if all the data is in yeah. yet, but the preliminary data looks like it sounds like anecdotally that yeah. people are experiencing smaller tax refunds than perhaps yeah, some people, in the last uh, couple of years. But that has that's really not doesn't reflect whether they got a well, you know, paid more or less in taxes. Does no, it? it's uh, one of these behavioral things where. Uh, uh, getting a big refund means you've uh, made a tax-free loan to the government during the year, which sounds like a bad idea. But people came to expect a, a kind of what they thought, thought of as a windfall when they got money back. So we're kind of forced savings. Yeah, I they, think that's what it is, yeah. forced savings. I have to always remind clients of that, that you know, when it comes to taxes, the government's going to get what they're going to get. They're not going right. to just let you pay less or more. Yeah. It's really just a matter of timing. And so like Dr. Gertz said, if you get a refund at the end of the year, it just means you really – paid too much in taxes throughout the year. But some it, people do that by design. And, well, that, that's the only yeah. way they, so for some people, that's that's a form of savings. Yeah. Right. Well, and then the flip side of that, sometimes people get bent out of shape if they owe money at the end of the year. But theoretically, you owed that money during the year and you just didn't do it. So it's not like this penalty that you're paying at the end of the year. It's just, no, you basically got 
a loan from the government, if you want to think of it that way, or essentially you got to use that money for the year, and now you, you need to pay it because you didn't pay it during the year. And this is going to be pretty much a retirement show today, um, but speaking of retirement, it reminds me that one of the you know, the things or the complexities, it's not all that complex, but it's one of the things that stirs in clients' minds and that transition to retirement is, uh-oh, how do I handle withholding and taxes? And that's something we constantly kind of have to monitor and help clients with at all times, isn't it? Yeah, and I think for most people it's pretty simple because you can withhold from IRA withdrawals, you can withhold from Social Security and pensions, and so hopefully you just, through your tax withholding, as long as it's a, an appropriate amount, you don't have a big refund or a big bill at the end of the year. Um, I think the people where it gets maybe a little bit more complicated is people who have giant taxable accounts who right. might have to make estimated payments, especially if they're not withdrawing from IRAs or something like that. Or if they have some outside income or some income producing, you know, farmland or something. And then you got this mix mosh and it's wondering like, you know, because people, you know, do I have to we get you uh, by the end after a year or two by looking at kind of their tax returns. You can come pretty close, can't you? Yeah, and a lot of times, just even on the front end, I'll just email their CPA. You know, if I know their CPA and have his contact info and say, hey, how much should I, do you, you know, would you like me to withhold from their IRA, you know, or whatever it is. So I think that's kind of the most accurate way to do things because he's going to know things better than I do. But like I always tell people, we're really going to hone in on it year after year because sometimes the first year is tricky because, you know, you're, you're working you're, part of the year. Ex exactly. Yeah, so that's one of those things. So, you know, taxation never goes away, Fred. And and I think is, uh, and then we'll move on from the state, but is that our governor's way of saying, well, we're seeing what's happening in New York with the flight of some of the wealthier, you know, they admit it. Uh, Cuomo admitted that, you know, we, we got to stop doing things that are going to, because it, it's, it's fair to say that the wealthiest people, may, let's call them the top 1% or, or less, uh, probably more mobile than typical people. Well, they're more mobile, and they also uh, have more <laughs> incentive to be mobile. Uh, if you're paying uh, uh, a few hundred dollars a year in taxes, if it goes up by 5% or down by 5%, you're not going to pick up and go someplace else. But if you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars, especially in capital gains, things of that sort, it, it makes a, a bigger difference. Yeah, well, unlike other states, <clears throat> Illinois... Uh, taxes capital gains at the at the full rate. It's not like the federal government where it's taxed at a at a lower rate. But for uh, retirees, uh, Illinois is pretty tax friendly. Yeah, it's it? really great uh, for retirees, not for the state, but uh, right. the, in, in, individuals from any kind. It's not just public employees. Any kind of qualified plan, four hundred one k, four hundred three b, four fifty seven, whatever it might be, is not not taxable. Do you look for that to to stand in the long run? No, politically, it's very difficult. It, uh, again, the federal government taxes it. Uh, most other states tax it, but for some reason, Illinois has never done that. And reversing it now would be very difficult. In fact, uh, uh, Governor Pritzker actually ruled that out as part of his changes. He'd, he'd rather tax really high-income people with a progressive tax as opposed to taxing retirement income. When you really think about the amount of income uh, that people can have, so... It's somewhere around a hundred thousand by the time you, a couple married couple takes a standard deduction uh, you, you're, you're going to be still probably stay in the 12 percent on a federal basis yep. uh, marginal tax bracket you're probably going to pay maybe six or seven percent overall taxes on your income uh, yeah. on that on the federal level and then in the state of Illinois it's very favorable right. so you really you could be a retiree in the state of Illinois um, 
give credit where credit's due. I don't know if it's good or bad, but right. for retirees, you think about having $100,000 of income and maybe paying 6 or 7 or 8% total tax. Um, right. And make, vir- virtually no state tax except for uh, maybe sales tax, things like that. Right, or if you have some other you know right. type of income that most people don't have. Um, well, oh, we have, uh, <clears throat> we have Stan on the line. Let's go to Stan. Stan's probably missed us. Stan, you're on the line. Yes, Dan. Good morning, guys. Yes, sir. Thanks, thanks for your show. I think you do a really good job. Thank you. There's a couple of things I think you're missing about this uh, tax situation and the fact that uh, people are getting uh, less refunds. And that is, first of all, the fact that the IRS sets up the withholding tables based on the number of exemptions you claim. So once the uh, tax law was passed last year, they set those withholdings up and people started getting money back. And then around September, the IRS started saying, oh, wait a minute, maybe we uh, changed your withholding too much and you need to review your withholding numbers and and et cetera, et cetera. It was a typical scam against uh, middle and lower income taxpayers. And the proof of that is in the fact that, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the people that are getting hurt the worst by this uh, uh, tax scam is the uh, people who get 1099s and are uh, independent contractors. Most of those are middle income people or, or below. And uh, because of the number of things that were eliminated as tax deductions from 1099 receivers, uh, their taxes have gone up substantially to pay for the tax cut for the one percenters. Yeah, of course, they got their share. A lot of those are sub-S and type companies, and they got their own nice tax bracket where as long as they stay under certain pretty high income limits, a lot of these companies can you know, deduct for 20% of their income federally. Uh, so that was kind of, I guess, a gift to the smaller businesses or whatever you want to call it uh, in lieu of or in light of the reduction of, from a corporate standpoint, pretty significant reduction of taxes. So, but again, well, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you would call it a scam in a sense I would, that yeah, uh, I'd say maybe the, they, got, uh, they got something wrong, a, typical uh, government. It, it, I don't think it works to the advantage of the administration to make people mad. So, uh, again, I, very likely it was a mistake and maybe poor planning and, and people probably didn't make the appropriate adjustments like yeah, David it's, were, I, I was talking think, about. Well, I don't think it's a scam or an but, indictment at all. They got, you know, people, look, the tax rates were what they were. It's up to everybody to put on their big boy pants and get their withholding right and to verify it and to make sure. Now, a lot of people and most people aren't going to do that. But I don't know if I'd call it a scam just because people just, didn't get their withholding right. Can I, can I just give you one example? Sure. Sure. Amazon. Last year, Amazon made $11 billion. I, in you know, Stan, I don't know. I don't know anything about Amazon and their tax structure and the whys and the wherefores. And, and frankly, you know, we're not going to go into that in the show because then we start getting in the political show and there's plenty of that. And I'm not saying you're wrong or right or anything. I'm just saying that's not the direction I want the show to go, just to be blunt. Um, yeah, but, you I know, know, we hear these things a lot know. about corporations and Netflix and not paying any corporate income taxes. But a lot of times, look, they're just playing by the tax rules. Um, I assume they are. And look, they are what they are. That's what the, that's what the, the con- Congress can do. They can, they can change these things. And I'm not arguing whether it's right or wrong. Uh, all I know is, uh, last I looked, 
that 40% of the people in the country are paying essentially 100% of the tax. I don't know if that's right or wrong. I, I know that's correct as far as yeah. when, you, when you allow for transfer payments uh, and all those things. And, and then, you know, if you got 40% of the people paying on a federal basis, the income taxes, adjusting for transfer payments, um, and then people are told that those 40% aren't paying enough, what it's saying is, no, we're happy to have you pay 100% of the taxes. We just don't think you're paying enough. And uh, again, uh, so that's just me being a little flustered over the, the yeah. tax issue. Yeah, but you're I feel your pain. You're just talking about income taxes, too. You're not yeah. talking about all the other taxes. But I know there are there's a bunch, Stan. But I, hey, I appreciate so. your thoughts today and for bringing that up, because I think you're right. It was and you know, in fact, I forgot about that, how they they changed it a couple of times, you know, at least once after they came out with the original ones. And I think that goes a long way to explain people's. <laughs> you're surprised when they're getting their tax taxes done. Thanks, Dan. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Anyway, guys, uh, on a positive note, uh, not that that wasn't positive, but anytime we get to start talking about taxes, you know, I, I, you know, <laughs> even gets me talking about it. But um, since Christmas Eve, I noticed that the Standard and Poor's 500 index, which is a broad measure of basically USA Inc., uh, is up 19%. That's a pretty... That's a pretty substantial move. Yeah. If you look at the NASDAQ, it's up 20, and the small companies, the Russell 2000. And when we talk yeah. about small companies, it's as if you ranked all the companies from largest to smallest, throw out the top 1,000, and look at the next 2,000. Yeah, you didn't anyway. talk about your, your call six weeks ago. That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so which call was that, Fred? That the, if uh, it was good, down, mention downturn, it. The downturn was over. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well... Uh, I was probably was a little premature, actually. Yeah, yeah, you uh, had a, uh, a couple of weeks of uh, of pain, out. but uh, <laughs> I felt like at the time uh, that for some reason, Fred, the economics and the earnings and valuations. I guess reality, when I'm looking at everything around me, it would seem to be a complete disconnect between a stock market being down on a broad sense twenty percent or more, and everything was better except for those prices, and it just did make sense to me and it doesn't have to make sense obviously it sometimes and, and you've said it yeah. over and over again the market discounts the future and the future is unknowable but when you overlapping right. six or seven billion minds maybe there's enough information yeah. there where maybe there's something coming that we're, we're not aware of but you but there was a disconnect you weren't suggesting doing anything based no. on uh, again the, the main thing is you don't have to guess you just uh, let it ride in most the, cases and the whole industry this is a financial industry is is predominantly about forecasting and guessing you know you know we like to be the antidote to that now what we did is we made sure that anybody we were dollar cost averaging in on is this fair to say guys that we sped it up real fast and completed it in that window uh and it went down further before we were you know after we were done but albeit for a very short period of time because it it has rallied back uh, substantially so it worked out for us by rebalancing where we needed to uh, by it speeding up the dollar cost average into that weakness, I, I was pretty blunt about it, guys. I said, "Hey, <laughs> you know, if we well, got anybody else, we're dollar cost averaging, and let's get it done." And yeah, to be to be fair, there's no way there was no guarantee that was going to work out that way. I mean, theoretically, you could do that, and the market could fall further. So we always have to have those conversations with clients if they are dollar cost averaging, and if if we're doing any sort of Basically, anytime you're making a decision of when you're going to invest money, you really don't know w w how it's going to turn out. There's some judgment the involved. Fact, you know, and I, it, is it fair to say that you guys um, 
I come at this for 35 years and, you know, I'll come in and tell you guys, hey, I think I think this decline's almost out of bullets. Let's let's speed up our dollar cost averaging. I think from time to time, you know, I get a look from you guys like, well, you know, you don't know. Right. <laughs> you know, how do you know that this is that it's the most of the pain is almost over? And it's really not. It's just a judgment call that that I'm saying, look, it, the, the decline may not be out of bullets, but. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm going in at this point. I'm. I'm. It's. It's fallen sufficiently now where I'm comfortable just making that commitment to the allocation. It's going to be a lifetime allocation commitment, and we use that weakness. But yeah, there's, that, there's judgment tough, involved. Yeah, it's a tough world too. Like this week's, there's been a lot about Warren Buffett, and uh, uh, unfortunately for uh, uh, local business, Kraft has done very poorly the last uh, right. several months, and especially the last week or so. But Warren Buffett was a big investor there and again Huge. he's very likely the smartest guy around but even the smartest guy around doesn't always uh, get it right well I mean, and he even talked in his newsletter that his two of his star managers that he brought in maybe to replace him ultimately yeah. nobody knows at this point but uh both have underperformed the standard Poor's 500 index since they came on board which was you know to me is not an indictment bad or good it's just okay well that's because they're invested differently than the yeah. s&p 500 right. and they also well, have the the headwind of seeing a lot of, ca of cash uh, having cash is a bad deal if the market's going up but in all fairness they're supposed to be the best and the brightest yeah and if and they're and they've built their track record on beating standard ports 500 index the reason many shareholders have owned that stock over the years is because of that's outperformed the mm -hmm. S&P 500 index. And so they got to, at least he's man enough to get out there and just put it in writing where yeah. he really doesn't have to. And basically, it's it, reading through his newsletter, it's just, once again, he keeps saying, you know, you're probably just better off buying an index fund, people. Yeah, uh, and, and there's a famous, a nice uh, the famous bet with the hedge fund right. people that uh, hedge funds would underperform the Ted sides. SP, yeah. and he was right by a long ways, but right. he also underperformed the S&P during the right. same period by a much smaller amount. Yeah, so, uh, you know, investing is difficult, especially for, uh, I think, for retirees, guys. Uh, do, do you guys sense that there's a, like a switch that goes off from pre-retirement to I'm about to retire or I'm this is my first day of retirement? Or maybe more of a gradual switch because I feel like people start to pay a little more attention like that year before they're going to retire too. So people who are, you know, about to retire maybe next year and then, you know, they went through that 20% or so market decline in basically the end of 2018. I think those types of people get a little nervous like, well, how is this going to impact my ability to retire a year from right. now? But I think it really does get much worse once you actually pull the trigger. You are retired. It's kind of like there's no going back now, right. and we're withdrawing money from my portfolio. We just started that, and the market's down. I mean, that, so, that really heightens emotion. So you think about a couple of years or five years within retirement, you've probably never had more money than you have today because you've been accumulating all these years. At least most of the time, that's the way it works. And then you throw on those two things. Instead of accumulating and getting a paycheck, you're decumulating, you're spending down some of your assets. At least you should, <coughs> I think, for a retirement done right. Uh, runs counter to, I think, the typical 60, 70, or 80-year-old who always felt like, well, we should never touch principal. I, I think, I mean, that's fine if you want to live a, a lifestyle that is not as complete as it could be, or I shouldn't use complete, but uh, where you're doing less you know, than was possible. 
so you stir those things together, which is why I think it always makes sense as you're approaching approaching retirement, kind of in the big picture here, guys. Uh, we generally suggest to, even if your allocation, if, even if it's determined throughout three decades of retirement, maybe we're going to suggest 60 or 70% of your money being in the great companies of America and the world, or what some call the stock market. Probably a, f a few years prior to retirement and a few years into retirement, we're, gonna, we're going to suggest a lower allocation to the stock market than we are during the permanent part. And that's just because of that sequence of returns risk, because if you get bad returns in the first few years, uh, we talk, there's an awful lot of talk about that sequence of returns risk, but you want to explain what that is, Dave, and why we had kind of in a general sense suggest that maybe you want to have more bonds than you might permanently have surrounding retirement. Yeah, so I always try, try to explain sequence of returns as just the order that you get your returns. So you could have two retirees that are retired over two different 30-year periods. They both earn exactly the same average return over that time period, but one of them had really good returns on the front end and then kind of bad returns on the back end, and the other one kind of had the opposite, really right. good returns on the on the. Well, the opposite of whatever I just said. Right. So bad returns <laughs> up front, good returns at exactly. the end. Exactly. I lost track of that. But basically what you find out is the returns in the first few years of retirement and even a few years prior to retirement have a much bigger impact on your lifetime outcome than the returns in kind of the other years of retirement right. in the end. Because a simple way to think about it is good returns at the end of your retirement really doesn't help you if you already basically ran out of money or your portfolio is depleted so much that even really good returns on a really small balance doesn't really recover that like your money that much. Yeah. So uh, that has a huge impact and that's where you need to come up with strategies to essentially deal with that. Or you, you don't have to, but you can come up with strategies to deal with that. And honestly, probably the most important is having a process for adjusting your portfolio withdrawals if you do get a bad sequence of returns. But then the other one is things like you'll hear people talk about, well, I'm going to have at least five years of money, kind of a buckets of money approach right. set aside to cover the first several years of retirement without having to touch the stock market portion. Or just a similar along the lines of what you're talking about is it kind of accomplishes a similar thing, starting out a little more conservative the first few years of retirement. And, and the downside is because there's no free lunch here. Most of the time, the sequence of returns are favorable. Most of the time, just not always. So you're kind of insuring for a small probability event, and there's a cost to that by being more conservative on the front end, uh, because most of the time, sequence of returns are so favorable that your kids are gonna, if you don't spend it, your kids are gonna inherit a lot more mm -hmm. money than you intended. Yeah, uh, and uh, uh, you have the option of making it certain by buying an annuity, but very few people ever buy an annuity because you're paying a very high price by giving up the stock market returns. That exactly, right. well, and, and eliminating the possibility yeah. of having money left over yeah. right. for your children. And, and, and so some cases it's appropriate or part of the money, it's never all or nothing. Uh, but again, it's, and a lot of researchers, uh, Jeff Brown from the University of Illinois writes a lot and has, has been on that, I don't know how to call it a bandwagon, but that's a word that's coming to me, but a lot of real serious research by some really smart people that are saying, well, these immediate annuities, when we talk about annuities, we're talking about you trading a lump sum of money for a lifetime income stream. Um, they think should be much more and, are, and eloquently argue that these immediate income annuities, uh, payments for life for, for a lump sum of money should be a 
bigger part of retirement strategies, but as Dr. Fred said, uh, turns out for, for whatever reason, I think a lot of it's psychological, is you know they don't wanna trade away the upside, the potential mm-hmm. upside, and they don't want to trade away the flexibility in case they need a big, you know, something occurs in I life. think most people forget that it's not an all-or-nothing decision, too. I, I can absolutely get on board with, you know, if someone's Social Security isn't replacing a large portion of their kind of really important essential expenses, then maybe you think about, okay, well, I'm going to buy an annuity to cover the the amount that I need it to cover to, co- to make sure my absolute essential expenses are covered and then I can be a little more aggressive with the rest of my portfolio because I know, hey, my worst case scenario, I've got this much guaranteed income. And that's called the safety first approach to retirement. And what do you and think of that? Because I know you in your, you both, you know, in your certified financial uh, planning professional, but also in the retirement income, that was a bigger part of yep. those income strategies. What's your take on that safety first, which is saying, you know, make sure you buy enough income streams that are guaranteed to to run your household? I think it's a totally reasonable approach. I think it gets down to personal preference and what your goals are. And I think if you take that safety first approach to investing, you're going to have less potential downside likely because you're going to have at least a certain level absolutely locked in guaranteed of income level. But you're also giving up potential upside of increased spending, likely increased spending if returns are fairly decent and the upside of a larger legacy. but some people are okay with that trade-off and others aren't. So it just depends on what you want to accomplish. And I think one thing too, somebody who is more capable of cutting back in retirement should bad show up, may right. not need to go down the, the immediate annuity uh, pathway simply because they're, they've cautioned themselves on spending in the past. They're capable of cutting back and saying that I can, I can go to more meager means if needed, where some folks, they don't have the ability, like David said, you have to at least meet the bare minimum needs. And some people have sufficient uh, financial assets by the time they retire that they can stay in a little higher equity exposure and still be okay without having to lock it up. One of the issues to me has always been, you know, it it is, unless you buy, and I'll get to the solution here in a minute, you know, typically most of these are fixed payments for life. It's, you know, 12 12 years from now, it's a thousand a month, it's a thousand a month today, whatever that amount is. And we all know we're in a rising cost world. Well, you can figure that out and, and, and still figure out whether that makes it work or not. But the answer has been, and I, I look for this to get better. And it just shows you that there's no free lunch. So if you go out and buy now an inflation indexed annuity, I'm not talking about a, you know, an equity index annuity or a fixed income. I'm talking about you know a, 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 a single premium income for life that's adjusted for some level of inflation. And I'm seeing these come in at somewhere around three and a half percent starting out as a withdrawal rate. So if you had a hundred thousand, you could probably buy somewhere around thirty-five hundred dollars. I haven't looked at them for a while, so maybe it's better. I look for that to get better. Um, yeah, my, my favorite option, which no one seems to like very much, is a deferred annuity. Uh, yep. Buy an annuity that kicks in at eighty, and uh, you don't have to worry about the period from when you retire until you're eighty, and if you run short on money, you have that kicking in, but, but that doesn't seem to be a, a particularly popular uh, I think the option. reason, Fred, and I looked at that, because I think from a theoretical standpoint, I think that it should be a huge answer. should yeah. be a, a, a really key component to most retirees' plans. When I went and priced them and actually looked at, okay, how much money do I have to trade at age 50 or at age 60 or whatever you begin purchasing these deferred income streams down the road, 
that last for life yeah. once they kick in. Um, frankly, my opinion was they just don't compete well with even the most conservative type of portfolio. Right. Uh, it's been a year since I really priced them. Maybe they're getting better. This is an area where I think that they're going to be huge improvements. And I suspect in the next five years that while we're not using them now, I'll be surprised if five years from now they're not you know, a, a pretty significant component of our financial plans just because they need to get more competitive uh, uh, than they are. Um, it's the same reason when after the lost decade at the end of 2009, that 10 year period, the Wall Street Journal did an article about, well, these variable annuities with guaranteed benefits, living benefits, well, they usually weren't that favorable, the Wall Street Journal as a rule, but they said, wow, well, this decade, instead of $100,000 invested in the U.S. total market being worth 90000 in this one variable annuity they talked about with a 5% guarantee return no matter what, and it was a simple guarantee, so uh, the 100000 was worth 150, and they were going on and explaining how, wow, that's a pretty valuable guarantee, but the, the illustration they used was somebody who was uh, 60 years old buying, accumulating in that annuity for 10 years, it's worth 150,000. Then they get, get kick in that guaranteed 5% benefit for life, which was $7,500. And I went and did the analysis of that and I figured out it's a horrible deal because even the most boring portfolio is going to do better than that, something like 95% of the time. In other words, you're really giving the insurance company chances are a very hundreds of thousands of dollars of your money that you could have had even in a boring portfolio and so that's why i said that was a very expensive guarantee that looks good on paper but when you do the math this is the problem i think that is going to be overcome guys and i think these uh, annuity income streams i think if the, if the certain firms get together and use better capital market assumptions and better better modeling they're going to offer more attractive uh, annuity yeah. income streams, but some it, of them being it, deferred. It goes back to the point you make almost every uh, show, that the, the equi equity Fred, premium. I only have so much to say. <laughs> yeah, the equity premium actually comes at a cost. Uh, and yes. if anyone tells you I can give you equity returns with the risk of bonds, uh, they're selling you something that doesn't exist. Well, actually, they do try to sell that. It's called an equity indexed or fixed indexed annuity. Well, basically, this, the story is, and I'm kind of a broad brush here, but I see enough of them, people walking in, having been told they can basically have the returns close to the stock market with no downside risk, yeah. and it's not going to cost them anything. The company's <laughs> going to pay them this big fat yeah. commission. They're not paying it. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, so maybe this is going to get better, and I, I think it will. Um, since we're talking about retirement, I want to jump to this part that I, I sent it to Sun Paul, and he put, made it part of the show. Um, the American Institute of CPAs uh, reported, a, this was a few weeks ago, that running out of money is the number one financial concern of clients planning for retirement. 48% of clients expressed concerns about outliving their money. The report said this underscores the extent which even well-positioned clients are stressed over the prospect of going broke in retirement. Um, that's a big one. I mean, we met with somebody, Ryan, you and I yesterday, you could just see before he admitted it, you could see the visible fear of that, <clears throat> of making a mistake going into retirement, on, you know, on the front end of, okay, I just found out I can retire, I have enough money. Suddenly you can almost instantly see that fear on their client's face that says, well, 
now if I'm not going to do it myself, I have to pick somebody. And this is really the conversation yesterday. I said, look, I get it. This is really scary. This is a huge transition. And if you're not going to do it yourself, you're going to give it to somebody else, but you're not giving them your money to manage. You're giving them your lifestyle for the next and your family's lifestyle for the next two to three decades. And nobody can really prove anything. And uh, you, you, you see that a lot, don't you, this fear? You, you see it, and you, you can just tell that they're, they're wrestling with this. This is like a deep internal decision, and they're, they're so scared that what if I get it wrong because it's seemingly irreversible when you pull the plug and, and, you, and you retire. Sure, you could probably pick up a, a part-time job or another job, but it may not be to the full amount that you had before, so you really start thinking, gosh, I have to get it right. And you have to you have to worry about well I really hope I pick the right person if it's not going to be myself doing my own financial planning, and so it, it does it I, I see it I've seen it more and more as I've had more meetings with people that this is not just a a decision to be made right. I mean it is the decision as you're making that transition that that keeps them up at night. Yeah, I don't really frankly it, it still intrigues me how quickly make people make that decision. Uh, I, I guess you have to trust somebody. And, uh, but it's, I find, uh, frankly, it's a decision made in pretty short order. Uh, but I think it's that fear that, well, I've seen guys leave and retire and now I see them back working at age 70 and I don't want to be there. So this is a very psychological shift in retirement and running out of money turns out to be the big one. And that kind of makes sense. Uh, chief sources, emotional stress concerning outliving their money. 77% of respondents cited health care costs, 53% market fluctuations, and 50% unexpected costs. That squares with what we deal with in the face every day, doesn't it? Absolutely. I, I think health care costs are a big one for people, but usually health care is not as big of a problem for most people in retirement as they might think because most retirees don't have a lot of out-of-pocket health care costs aside from things that aren't covered by Medicare, like dentures and hearing aids, those are expensive. And especially depending on your income level, they can be a difference maker. Um, but I think the big one that can really derail people's plans is long-term care. If you have to go into a nursing home for an extended period of time and you know you really don't have assets set aside for that or you didn't buy long-term care insurance, figure out a way to fund it one way or another, you know, that can that can deplete your assets depending. I, I also hear people with horror stories of, oh, they burned through, you know, this guy had $10 million and burned through all of it. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense because right. a $10 million portfolio could easily fund that indefinitely. But um, for more middle income people, which is mostly what we're dealing right. with in Champaign-Urbana, I think that can be a problem. And that's where I think having a plan is so important because there are things that Sure, there are things that absolutely can't be planned for, totally unforeseen. But I think the big risks to a retirement in general are things that you can kind of plan for and, and hedge against. And and so walk me through that. A 62-year-old couple walks in the door. Uh, they have six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars $800,000 of assets. They, If they have any debt at all, it's very little, and they could put out that fire. If they walk in and they don't have long-term care insurance policy, um, and and most people don't. Um, but now, how do you integrate that? Because one of the two in that couple is going to be bring that up as something they worry about. So kind of a blocking and tackling. It, how, how, let's just say with their assets and their income streams from Social Security, 
maybe they have $5,000 a month you tell them they can spend. I'm, I'm making these numbers up, but they're probably somewhere close. Okay? Right. Uh, so where do you go from there when you start factoring, okay, how are we going to tackle this? Are we going to buy long-term care insurance at age 62? Or, or since that's something you want us to insulate you from the best we can, how do you actually go about that? Yeah, I like to add it as an expense in the plan for, and you have to come up with some sort of assumption. And a lot of times I'll ask the clients for input um, so, or even ask them about kind of family history, things like that. Um, but usually we'll put in like a few years of nursing home expenses. And what I like to do is, if, especially if there's an age difference and we're basically assuming, you know, usually it's the the husband that dies sooner, men tend to die sooner, right. and the wife surviving and We'll assume, you know, the final three years we want to cover nursing home expenses. And I try to account for the fact that, well, she already has a certain amount of income. So how much more income will they need in those so years? So if in today's dollars uh, the, the surviving spouse is going to have, in today's dollars, 60000 a year, um, what do you add on to that? So they have that to throw at it. Well, it, it kind of depends on like the time horizon because okay. in long-term care and expenses, I tend to inflate at a higher rate than just their normal retirement spending. Um, so, and and that depends on the time horizon. Sure. But call it, you know, maybe it's an extra twenty-five. I'm just pulling a number out of right. a hat, but say it's an extra twenty-five thousand a year. Of, Is that where you get like if, if it's eighty or ninety thousand dollars in today's dollars to live in to be happy? have we're going to just call a nursing home care for now because some people don't want to go there but that's a different well maybe that's a different discussion that we may or may not have today so we're looking at an 80 or ninety thousand dollar year spend you're going to say well if sixty thousand is showing up i got to add another 30 at least to it and over the next 20 years i'm going to inflate that at what somewhere around what, five probably like four or five percent okay. it's kind of tough to know the longer the time horizon right. is what the appropriate rate's going to be because <laughs> Like I was building a plan. We have an actual a client who's in his 30s, and it's kind of out of our wheelhouse. But I was thinking about, well, what what is the appropriate inflation rate? Like, how do I plan for long term care expenses? See, I don't, I don't, I don't even think like I that? would. I don't think under 50 I would put. But uh, for someone who's who says that's one of their concerns, right? Well, and for someone that young, it's like it it almost can't continue inflating at a significantly right. higher pace than just general expenses, or no one will be able to afford it. But for someone who's in their 60s or 70s, 20 years out, I tend to just stick to kind of historical inflation rates, okay. which is like around five. Okay. Historical inflation rates for that type of care. Right. And so, in other words, there's no free lunch here. If that's a concern that they want to do something about, if you may say, well, instead of being able to spend 60000 a year, your actual spend is 55000 a year. Well, where'd that 5000 go? Well, we're kind of earmarking that money that you're not going to spend towards that long-term care. But you're right. also, David, you're also assuming it's only one spouse. If you have two spouses and one goes, you have the spouse not going in still has to live. Exactly. And so that's something Ryan and I were talking about, and we're kind of figuring out how to, like, what's, what's kind of an appropriate default assumption? And yeah. you can't net out the expenses if, if yeah. you know, one's still living outside of the long-term care uh, place. And then the other thing you can consider is a lot of times people, if there's just one one of the spouses left, they'll sell their house and fund it. But if you have two spouses and one goes in, you know, especially at a, a particularly young age, the other 
um, might still be living in the house. So those are things that we kind of wrestle with, and I think it's kind of a case-by-case case right, scenario. Right, because in that scenario, you can look at maybe a possibility of reverse mortgage. Exactly. The, the one owner, you know, the one per, the, the spouse that's not going into long-term care has, as long as you make the, you know, as long as you pay the taxes and do all to keep the house up, you don't lose the house while you're alive. Uh, so there's ways to address that, but but it is healthcare, as you said. It's that's the seems to be the number one market fluctuations. Uh, you know, I think everybody's concerned about that. Just being humans, um, I, I think the minute people retire, they start thinking about market fluctuations. They'll call it risk, uh, and how that might damage them. And I think I think they get much more concerned than ever. And I always said when people retire. My experience is throughout retirement, they'll quit worrying about things they used to worry prior to retirement, and they'll start worrying about things they never used to worry about. That's just the psychological transition. I think that's market fluctuations are one of those <clears throat> unexpected costs. We call those curveballs. Um, you know, just is it just we is that just something you just talk about? Realize that look, we got to have margin for error in this because there are curveballs, and and maybe that's a reason, frankly. Is that ever, as part of your guys' plans, a reason to maybe have a little bit higher stock market allocation so that you have potential ways to, uh, how, how are you guys dealing with this? So certainly, I mean, so much of our, our job is just reacting to what life throws it throws at us. And I think we see like the curveball examples of maybe a, a child has to move back into the home or maybe a, a divorce. Due to divorce, or maybe a health issue, or maybe you're somebody in your 60s and you have a a parent still around and living at a late age, and they need assistance living in your home. So there's there's several ways where this can kind of pop up, and if you do have uh, a potential to have a higher equity exposure, that can give you potentially the ability to have higher returns over the long term. It's not a lock by any means, but it allows you to smooth out some of those wrinkles or those curveballs, as you called them. Uh, simply because you can get a hopefully a little bit of extra income off of the portfolio to maybe smooth that out. But frankly, I think the the true answer is that you need to have that margin per error in your plan. So if you look at your day to day living expenses and you say, okay, I need fifty thousand dollars a year of of retirement spending, your plan should probably say that it can support fifty five or sixty thousand a year of retirement spending. So that if you get a bad sequence of returns and you have to reduce your spending a little bit you can you know you have room for that if you have unexpected expenses you have room for that i think you need that margin of error built in i think so and i think that's something we've gone to over the years is being much more conservative on the front end of retirement as far as um what people can spend i i i tell clients just write to them look we sandbag a little bit um, because unexpected things happen and we and and we can always speed up spending we can always step on the gas in a few years but let's get through the initial part of retirement based on really conservative assumptions. The key ingredient, guys, and I don't know if you, you, know, you, you feel the same way, is we don't want to be overly conservative for three decades of a person's life. Otherwise, you're, they could live a life of regret. So it's kind of a balancing act that we have to, to in that regards to be conservative, but not overly conservative. Because you don't want to spend your whole life saving and saving and saving, and then you get to the retirement at the time where for so many people, that's your time to actually break free and do maybe the things that you wanted to do and then not do them. Uh, like you always say, you don't want to end up the richest person in the graveyard. 
Um, so it is, it is a delicate balancing act and it's something where you can intervene each year and take a look at how you're living and do you have enough to live? Could you possibly spend a little more? And those are conversations you have with your clients to make sure that you're not sacrificing the one retirement that they get. Would I be, I have a question. Has anyone ever run out? I suspect the answer is no. Uh, not, not that I've seen now, uh, because, frankly a good plan and i'm not and i can't say that it could never happen yeah. so I, mean, I have to be really careful there uh but i've had an awful lot thrown at me and my clients over 35 years including the second and fourth largest declines in u.s history at least in modern times uh and, and you know some pretty epic <laughs> things that are going on but that doesn't mean it couldn't happen and i think that's the whole point i think um most plans are probably overly conservative to the extent that most people find that they're going to end up having a lot more money when they do wake up on a cloud than they ever thought they would. And many times they're designed that way. And where we try to be careful with that, Fred, is when we see that coming, make adjustments. This is what David's talking about. And so you have to not only be flexible, if you're going to have, first of all, all of these concerns are pretty, I not, can't say eliminated, but take the stress of these things from a eight or nine to a two. Yeah. And that's if, the, if you have a really com uh, a comprehensive financial plan that really tries to deal with all of these issues in the same plan. Yeah, but you're not in a situation where you're down to the last penny where at the end, half the people are in the hole and half the people have money is probably like, 90 or 95 or 98 percent of the people well uh, yeah i mean that, that's the thing about these four percent rules and they're kind of on autopilot it's like taking a long trip you don't have any mirrors because you're not going to monitor conditions you don't have brakes because you're just going to put it on cruise control all the way through well you're going to run off the road at times so you probably ought to have brakes and you probably ought to look at your mirrors and you probably ought to make adjustments along the way it's those adjustments but it's the plan that provides the get, essentially the guardrails isn't it guys that you, you know where to, to step on the gas and spend more, and you know where to tap the brakes a little bit and cool your spending for a period of time until things get better. Uh, that's essentially how it works, Fred. So by design, if you have a proper plan, you shouldn't ever really be facing that fear of running out of Well, money. and even when you think about that 4% rule, it's including horrible time periods. It's including people who retired at the worst possible month in 1966 or at the worst you know, possible month, like September of 1929, and, and that's how they came up with, oh, even those people could, could withdraw 4% of their portfolio. Which means balance, that so. you, know, you have a 10% chance of leaving a billion dollars and a 10% chance of running out of money. Yeah. Sorry, Dave, I didn't yep. mean that. Thought you were. No, that's exactly right. So the vast majority mm -hmm. of the time, they end up actually having a bunch of money left over, and it's like those people who retired into 1929 they basically skated into or slid into home plate with yeah. zero dollars. Yeah. But so that's that's really what uh, I think a, a appropriate plan is has something a mechanism in place to, to know when to step on the gas and spending, unless the client's desire is to just have as much money as they can to leave someone or institutions they dearly love, which is very very few people I've ever met that was their number one goal. So um, you know more often than not the the, the the surprises are to the upside. Uh, the, if the future is anything like the past, and of course we always have to say it may or may not be, and we have this permanent uptrend in stock prices over our lifetime with lots of fluctuation, uh, 
you know, chances are if you tap the brakes and cut your spending and, and are careful and don't make the classic mistakes people make, um, you can probably outlive it and outrun it and get back on path. And, and I think that's, I'd be interested in this survey and it de doesn't do that. I bet if they separated people in the survey of people that have a comprehensive retirement plan and people that don't, you're going to get much different answers. In my um, in my RICP curriculum, they actually mentioned that th they must have done some study along those lines, and basically, the it the results were exactly what you suspect. It was people who actually had a retirement plan uh, worried less and actually enjoyed retirement more. I have no idea how they measured those things. I couldn't name the study. I just remember that from. But doesn't it make sense if you had an advisor in your life that could always tell you that no, you're not overspending, or tell you when you are about to overspend and we're going to cut back, or tell you when you're underspending? Um, it, it has a plan that has some, that's dealing with your long-term care concerns that you have. That has enough margin for error if the roof gets blown off and you need twenty-five thousand. It's the plan can cover it. I mean. How on God's earth can that person not be more, less stressed, less worried, and probably more happy uh, than a person that is basically living life by accident, has no idea if they have enough money, has no idea if, if they're going to run out of money, have no idea how they're going to deal with long-term care crisis or a curveball, even a modest one. Think about those two groups of people. And I, I'll still, this is me coming out of my foxhole with my you know white flag and my gun up in the air saying, that it's that society won't let us charge as much as we should for that service. Now I, I know that probably seems silly. Um, that's just my way of saying, and, and it doesn't have to be with us, folks. Every person out there, or most every person out there, ought to have a really good financial advisor and have a comprehensive retirement plan going into retirement. You'll live a much better life. A life with much less worry but as we talked about earlier finding that right advisor guys is harder than it sounds because everybody's an advisor everybody's got to look people in this business tend to be good talkers anyway they, they tend to be pretty good at the sales side of life and I think that's where the dilemma circles back to yes I realize I need one of those but I haven't f chosen one because I don't know how to maybe we'll, we should spend a show on how to choose a financial advisor. I actually just put together a resource for a client's sibling, actually, who was looking for an advisor, so we could go over that in the show sometime. And maybe we can link that up on rudywealth.com. Is that something yeah. that, you know, so why don't you get that it's, to Paul, he'll get it posted. It's obviously, like, incredibly biased because it's my, it's my opinion. <laughs> well, it's like asking a, a barber, a <laughs> asking a barber if you need a haircut. You know, they're gonna say yes. And which barber, you know, it's like, for me, it's like, okay, we'll find a fee-only advisor who, uses index funds you know yeah. it's like but that doesn't have to be us because there's a number of those out there exactly so in all fairness we do tilt it towards our favor but you would do that if you were retired and said well how should i choose an advisor i think right. that's fair to say yes uh, and, and we sincerely mean that so we try to be as educational as we can folks i hope this doesn't come off as a commercial uh it's not not our intent we have the great uh, not great we have dr fred gertz with us uh <laughs> always glad to have dr fred ryan and david Thanks for joining me on the show. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.